Like, like Dave Jamieson is like one of the better labor reporters out there in the mainstream yeah. press. It's cool because yeah, I've been doing some editing for the Real News Network and uh, getting to do uh, an interview with uh, Dave Jamieson, which I don't think is out yet. So this is probably actually <laughs> coming up. But also, secret I got secret information. More secret information. There's an ILWU lo- local six about Anchor Brewing. That one was really cool. But yeah. uh, l- listening, <laughs> I love to that some- we're now advertising other podcasts on our podcast. <laughs> we, we do this, we do this. But <laughs> hey, also they're very cool because one of the things I kind of no, realized while are. listening to a bunch of their other content is they kind of are. They have a, like a bunch of different shows, and they're really like the more radical, like worker-centered NPR. They really oh the they, r- Real News Network. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. This, this shit rocks. I don't know. Oh, I'm yeah. very excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Max is doing some good work over there. Yeah. Hell yeah. But uh, uh, speaking of good work. Yeah. This is your favorite labor <laughs> podcast. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show. So thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It goes a really long way towards keeping the show going because we are 100% listener-supported. If you're not in the Discord already, hop in there. It's a really wonderful place where you can find the reading group that is now being hosted on Tuesdays. If you are a patron who doesn't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon and I will walk over to the post office and mail them to you. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or tell your local mail carrier about us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, we're getting like a ton. Of, I think the sticker company that we're, the the union sticker company that we went through is sending out all of the new sticker. Well, it's the same stickers, but a bunch of stickers <laughs> very yeah. soon. We're swimming in stickers, folks. I learned yeah. to throw them like playing cards. <laughs> just, just trying to get that like gambit move off where you can mm-hmm. just throw stickers at people and they explode yeah, yeah. and then uh, the cajun accent comes next that's right well, i mean really honestly that's probably even more important to the character than the power but anyways this is not yet the meme review folks we got to do the episode first and so uh, the first thing i just wanted to shout out i couldn't even find a story about this i just saw this reported by uh, at daily union elections on twitter great account by the way uh they're uh, really useful to follow reports on all sorts of cool uh like new union filings but 72 workers are unionizing at corsair the the gaming accessory company which makes the keyboard that i use uh, which i just think is incredibly cool a that they're unionizing with the teamsters uh which is not what i would have expected but very cool um and i just like the fact that we will now have a union that can deploy more like flashing RGB than like anywhere else in the world. Yeah. I, w- I can't wait for like the, if they, well, I don't want, I don't want to like say that they're going to have to strike or anything like that. But like, if no, if they have to go out on the picket line for any reason, I, I cannot wait to see what that looks like. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just watched a, a 15 minute YouTube video of a guy who went to the big fighting games convention. I don't even know what it's called. Oh, Evo. Evo, and he just walked around and asked to see people's like fight boxes, like button boxes, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that would be a really fun picket line activity for these folks. <laughs> yeah, 
A hundred percent. So yeah, I couldn't even find a story about it. It was just like, this is cool. And I wanted to mention it, but, uh, to transition to the first, like, you know, story we have a little bit more on, uh, this is just a real quick follow-up. You know, we had discussed back, I want to say a couple of months ago, uh, when Starbucks really tried to bring down the hammer on workers in Ithaca, which of course we've often referenced as, you know, the first city to unionize every standalone Starbucks location during the, the early days of the Starbucks Workers United Union Drive. But that earlier this year, the company had retaliated against the workers for organizing by announcing that they would, and I believe now subsequently have, uh, closing all of those standalone stores, you know, of course, with the classic for business reasons, uh, which really means we don't like that they all unionized and we want to punish them and and have them be, you know, a example for other workers to try and, and keep them from doing that. And they so were, they were just too united. I mean, their <laughs> their union was very strong and Starbucks was scared. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, you know, workers throughout the area have been justifiably outraged at this. And there has been a protest campaign launched by students at Cornell University in the area demanding that the school end its contract with the Union Busting Corporation because basically they have like a licensing agreement with Starbucks where they sell Starbucks coffee on campus. And so the students have been like, well, look, if that this is the way Starbucks is going to treat their workers, we shouldn't be selling Starbucks coffee. And the, the students held a, a sit-in at the time to amplify their demands. And now, a few months later, they have actually won, which is really awesome because uh, on August 16th last week, uh, as reported by Josh Idelson for Bloomberg, the school announced that they will not be renewing their contract with Starbucks when it expires in two years in 2025. Uh, Nick Wilson, a Cornell student and former Starbucks worker, told Bloomberg, quote, so far, consequences have been extremely limited for Starbucks union busting. But if institutions like Cornell that represent young people and represent more altruistic views are willing to take a stand, I think that represents a huge opportunity for workers to gain some leverage, end quote. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I love that. Well, and like, I mean, let's be clear, uh, Cornell doesn't stand for altruism, but the folks no. at Cornell absolutely do. So yeah. yeah. When I saw that quote, I wanted to be like, hey, don't don't sell yourselves short. Like, mm-hmm. don't give Cornell the institution this credit. It's like, y'all <laughs> made this happen with your protest. Yeah, that's right. Well, and speaking of other movements that are making it happen, we've talked many times about the REI union, and this week, the workers organized at REI locations around the country have launched their newest effort in their organizing campaign. Since REI portrays itself as a, you know, different from regular company by being a co-op as a means of propaganda to deflect from their union busting, the union is now working to build support among co-op members with a new solidarity pledge. As workers said on social media announcing the new pledge, quote, since our victory, we've had the opportunity to work with green vests all over the country. Six additional REI stores have filed, voted, and won their elections. Our members' support remains steadfast as we work to reach a fair agreement with the company, and our union only continues to grow. Our power and ability to drive change at REI lies in our numbers. This includes not only the number of workers involved, but our supporters as well, end quote. And the solidarity pledge that they're setting up asked 
uh, asks existing REI co-op members to agree to actively voice support for the union to hold REI accountable for its actions as co-op members and to take action to support local union efforts when asked. The community support building has long been a vital part of contract campaigns to force anti-union employers to the bargaining table, and we encourage listeners to take you know the efforts to actually go and sign this pledge and uh, say that you support the workers at REI because the union busting that's been going on there is ridiculous. They are... nearly as if not you know the same as intransigent as starbucks yeah it's really interesting in this situation because rei likes to hide behind the fact that they are nominally legally technically a Mm co-op um but in a sense you know the union has identified that like that does actually kind of provide a corporate weakness that they can attack because if they turn the tide of public opinion among the quote-unquote co-op members who are really just customers i mean let's be frank about what an rei is uh then yeah. they might a, actually a consumer really... co-op and a worker co-op are not the same thing <laughs> consumer co-op is just a made-up thing it's, just, it's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's not a real thing it's just a fun marketing idea um but yeah, I mean, like this could have really far-reaching consequences, and we've seen what's happened when you really do get your customer base supporting the union, and so not just at any one given store, but it also tends to really uh, uh, instill a high level of of support for unions in general after a while. Yeah, well, and I I do think it speaks to you know like the analysis that's obviously going on within the REI union. Like this, I, you know, I think clearly there was some power mapping that was done to identify like, hey. As exactly as you said, you know what? Like, there's a lot of like major companies where you like get customer support, and the management's just like, I don't care, fuck our customers. <laughs> but like, in the whole, we're not a regular business; we're a co-op. Well, okay, fine, bet. All right, well, let's see if you listen to the members of the co-op. Then it's like they actually have an obligation to at least pretend to be listening to them. And so, if you you know get a lot of the customers and. While the company may not actually be as progressive as their image, you know, implies, at least some of the customer base certainly is. And so I think there, there will probably be a decent chunk of, of folks who shop at REI who are not happy with the way that management has been addressing the union drive and are more than happy to, to actually make, you know, material effort to, to sign up and, and support the workers, which we, of course, encourage any of our listeners who do shop at REI and our members to, to do. And we'll put and, the link to the pledge in our in the notes. And just to be clear, you don't actually have to be a member of REI to buy things there, but the membership supposedly goes towards local county and national parks. Mm. Smells like a scam to me, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, as with most fundraising of, of companies in general. Mm. Yeah. So uh, one more real quick hit story that we just wanted to get to, uh, you know, to celebrate uh, some more union wins is uh, to look to another big successful uh, contract agreement in the airline industry, which we've actually seen several of recently because, you know, we just talked about the, the pilots at American and United winning major raises of 40%. 
And now the uh, ground workers have made some big gains as well. Uh, this week, Southwest Airlines announced that they'd reached a tentative agreement with the Transport Workers Union, which represents 17,000 ramp workers, baggage and cargo handlers, and other vital uh, grounds workers who keep all the actual, all the complicated logistical operations that have to occur at every airport every day just to, you know, keep the whole network going to actually keep that moving relatively smoothly. And so the new deal that they won in this new contract will raise pay for these workers to some of the best in the country at $36 an hour, which, you know, for working class jobs, that's a that's a pretty, pretty solid rate. They also won increased retirement contributions from the company, uh, better health care benefits in retirement for workers and more holidays for workers. So I just, you know, wanted to highlight this as another like point showing where even in a, a, an industry like the airlines, which are so heavily regulated because they're, they're subject to the Railway Labor Act, even under those conditions, when the workers are really united and are able to flex some muscle about like, look, we know that there's a bunch of legal shackles here, but uh, we are going to be needing some more compensation if we're going to keep doing this shit <laughs> and actually have made some big progress. And so I just want to highlight, you know, that like, in addition to huge union contracts, like say the UPS one or, you know, the fight at, at the UAW, there's also a lot of these smaller unions that are also uh, right now being able to show what the real difference is of having a union. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Well, and we want to highlight a couple more wins before we get into what will probably be a little bit of a heavy episode, as we tend to do on occasion. First, we're going to be talking about a massage studio in Florida, which will be the first to unionize in its industry. So with this new wave of organizing as it continues to expand into more and more traditionally non-union fields, we're seeing lots of different jobs decide that they want to represent themselves collectively. And this time, in, uh, as per reporting by Orlando Weekly in Florida, there is the literal first unionized massage parlor. On August 4th, the massage therapist at Hand and Stone Spa in Gainesville voted 22 to 3 to join UFCW Local 1625. Hell yeah. uh, a separate election will be held on site in the coming weeks for the other workers at the spa to unionize as well in a separate bargaining unit. So it's also exciting that they have gotten even more people organized at that particular location. Yeah. I One thing that I, I really wish that, because when I was reading through this and putting the notes together on it, there wasn't a lot... There wasn't a ton on some of the, like, you know, ins and outs of how they did the organizing campaign, which, of course, is it's more investigative work. It's harder to get that information, but like, uh, I would really love to know what forced the two bargaining units. If it was a choice by, if it was like a tactical choice or if it was what I'm more expecting that the company like insisted, like in front of the NLRB that are like, no, these are completely different things. You, they can't be together, blah, blah, blah. There's also the small chance that there is security that is oh, that right. separate unit. Uh, Because the NLRB does sometimes rule that security needs to be a separate unit. But we'll uh, make sure to get an update on that, if not in a future episode, at least in the Discord. But to go back to uh, what Hand in Stone is, it is a national chain of spas with locations in 35 states and operates on a franchise model, which, uh, you know, has made made it pretty difficult to unionize. 
partially because there's like a joint employer issue with uh, franchisees and and such. But yeah, it's uh, like almost the whole reason the franchise system exists. Yeah, is is to is to subvert labor law. No, no, they just want young entrepreneurs to feel like <laughs> their right. business can be a startup for their futures. That's right, my startup Taco Bell franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, as expected, these bosses were not really excited by the union and were not uh, thinking that the franchise model is enough of a barrier for the workers. They actually decided to bring in both local Florida union busters, labor pros, and nemesis of the show, Littler Mendelssohn, the classic. Ooh. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I guess... It is good that they have actually won this election, and we really hope that the next unit wins as well in the face of these absolute terrible, terrible organizations. Yeah, what kind I of just... no-imagination-ass name is Labor Pros? <laughs> right? They're, they're not, though. They're not pros. Hey. They're not pro-labor. Well, and they're also clearly not pros at their job because they mm. failed pretty fucking hard here. <laughs> now, two men in a truck, there's an honest business name. Not an honest <laughs> business, far from it, but an honest name. <laughs> <laughs> I was also just like, the fact that they had to hire two union busting companies? Yeah, <laughs> that's... I, it's like, very strange. Did the did they work together or were they like not really about like working together because they're union busters? Do you th uh, do you think labor pros got called to the scene and they were like, you know, collecting evidence and kind of walking around and then Littler Mendelssohn showed up and they were like, FBI, this is our scene now. <laughs> That's kind of what I was envisioning. Just this like argument over jurisdiction yeah. and like little Littler Mendelssohn like goons trying to like upstage the labor pros guys hell yeah i hope they sabotage the shit out of each other and ruin the whole thing i mean that might explain why it ended up being 22 to 3 yeah. <laughs> because they hired these two and they spent the whole time just screaming at each other and the workers are like who the fuck are those guys <laughs> but in a uh, kind of related story that actually inspired these workers to begin organizing hand and stone followed after fellow ufc members in colorado formed the country's first union at a franchise spa, Elements Massage. Lori Alcott, uh, one of the ma massage therapists at Elements, said following their union win, quote, we stood our ground, unionized, and demanded that our needs as valuable employees be respected and heeded. We did it. Now it's your turn, end quote. And now that the workers at Hand and Stone have defeated two union-busting firms and won their union, they look forward to bargaining for their first contract and improving a whole host of workplace issues. Hell yeah. We talk about all the time on the show how excited we get when industries that a lot of people said couldn't be unionized start to show signs that actually, you know, those people were full of shit. Uh, <laughs> and pivoting... F oh, did you want to say something, Dan? No, I was just going to say, like, yeah, this is... I, this is great for, you know, multiple reasons because I just love the fact that they're like, uh, you know, the first spa in, in Colorado is like, hey, we did it. Now everybody else do it. Mm -hmm. And the folks in Florida were like, hell yeah, let's go. That's what it I'm fucking talking reminds about. Reminds me of the, the strippers union, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah, just... we immediately got that second one. Exactly, exactly. And hopefully it's a, it's a chain of, of more in the future. 
Well, pivoting to a type of workplace where we've actually seen the labor organizing uptick in full swing for quite a while now, uh, we're going to be talking about academic workers at Jacksonville State University. So even in deep south right-to-work states, the organizing wave in academia has continued to march forward. This week, we saw the latest new union of academic workers announced at Jacksonville State University in Alabama, the United Campus Workers, UCW, affiliated with CWA Local 3965, announced their union on Monday, August 14th. 14th was a big day. They are just the third (laughs) union workforce at Alabama's universities, joining the much larger University of Alabama and Auburn University. Alabama's got a lot of schools. So I I was just surprised, admittedly, when I because I saw the headlines like Jacksonville State University unionizes. And then I'm just like, oh, wow, a new union in Florida. And then it starts talking Mm. about Alabama in the article. And I was like, oh, okay, Yeah. (laughs) No, yeah, I mean, uh, people forget about Jacksonville, Alabama. Alabama's kind of like the Ohio of the South. (laughs) Stew on that for a little while. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So... Uh, The UCW is a wall-to-wall union, which includes faculty, school staff, and student workers all under one umbrella. So workers at the school say that... I know, (laughs) we love to see it. Uh, Workers at the school say that things have changed for the worse in recent years, prompting the employees to recognize the need for a union to fight for fair conditions. Teresa Reed, an award-winning professor at the school and member of the union's organizing committee, said in a statement, quote, I started at JSU in the mid-1990s. In the past Several years, it's become apparent that the power structure has changed. It is now much more a top-down system than it used to be, which means that input from the faculty and staff, and particularly those with the least power, has been greatly curtailed. Joining and helping grow the union is the best way to amplify many more voices on campus. End quote. I see why Professor Reed has won awards. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, well, I mean, she's basically identifying, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about with like the neoliberalization essentially of academia the the conversion of academia from yeah it's a business but we're not really going to focus so much on the business aspect of it to the this is a real estate company that happens to occasionally operate a school yeah. and so everything has to be run on profit margins which just fucks everything up at a school because that's not how a school is supposed to run <laughs> not at all so the union has pointed to the extremely low wages of campus workers which are just eight dollars and 25 cents an hour for student workers and for adjunct faculty Full-time housekeepers start at just $9, and adjunct faculty making average per course wages a full 30 to 40% lower than national averages as one of their key motivations for unionizing. Most campus workers also receive no benefits at all. So there's that. Other unions in the South have won starting wages for campus staff of at least $15, a major advance even if still basically a near-poverty wage. True. But also, if fifteen dollars is a poverty wage, what the fuck is eight twenty five? I I know, like it's it's one of those things where like I know, and I've yelled about this online plenty of times that yes, the national federal minimum wage is still seven twenty five an hour, but seeing people being paid that or just about that eight twenty five is it in twenty twenty three, like. It, if you made eight twenty five an hour here where I live, it would call it would take you four hours to be able to order a pizza. Like that is just a wild thing to go up to an, a person, a human being, and be like, "This is how much an hour of your time is worth." 
Like, come the fuck on. Yeah. I, I got, absolutely. I got paid almost eight twenty five after two years of working at McDonald's at the age of, like, 17. Yeah. Well, and, like, not to put down any other types of work, but these people are teaching an accrediting, an accredited class that is supposed to be preparing people throughout their, uh, you know, academic lives to, like, go get jobs and stuff. Like, these... These are not people who have, like, a trivial role in society. <laughs> well, but, I mean, even for, like, the 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 janitorial staff at this place, yeah. they're, they are human beings with families that have to eat food and pay rent. Yeah, $9 <laughs> an hour isn't going to fucking feed and house anybody. No. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's it's ridiculous. Because, I mean, like, again, like, just for, just for comparison's sake, $9 an hour if you work full time one job what is supposed to be the the social contract theoretically is you work your full time job and you make enough money to live like that's that's supposed to be the theoretical bare minimum social contract in the united states but 9 dollars an hour is 18,000 dollars a year there are plenty of places in this country where the rent for a two-bedroom apartment is more than that. One-bedroom apartment. Oh, my God. The rent for a fucking closet in someone's basement would annihilate that budget in almost every city in America. Yeah. So that's how low we're talking about for these wages, which uh, that to me, I'm like, yeah, that's good motivation for mm-hmm. making a union. And then they're also like, oh, also, nobody has any benefits. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like... Like, what kind of operation is the management trying to run yep. at this point? So the institution is actively trying to murder you. Got it. Understood. Yeah. Um, so associate professor and organizing committee member Mike Boynton said, quote, as both a teacher and someone very dedicated to JSU, I am excited by the many ways UCW can help not only everyone who works at the university, but the students, too, by improving their learning environment. What better way to support our amazing students than by supporting the amazing faculty and staff who work so hard for those students, end quote. Oh, they they said uh, teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> working conditions are customer conditions, are mm-hmm. anyone who's downstream of the worker conditions, period, students, uh, you know, patients, whatever. But um, the union has also invited workers at all levels at the school to join from student workers to full-time groundskeepers to faculty. And despite Alabama being a right-to-work state, when places pay as low as $9 an hour, classic anti-union intimidation tactics tend not to work. So it, I don't think it's totally unreasonable to be fairly optimistic that they will be able to cast a pretty wide net and draw in a pretty good amount of their fellow workers at that institution. My favorite part is the fact that if one of them, like, say the janitors have an issue that they need to strike over, the whole union can then strike, not just in solidarity, mm-hmm. but just as a union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that was one of the things that I thought was so cool about, like, A, these workers are facing absolutely atrocious pay, for, and and still... They're going in for the the wall to wall union, which is absolutely what you want to do, but it can be sometimes challenging to sell to folks who don't mm-hmm. understand like why it's so important. So kudos to these folks at Jacksonville State. Yeah, uh, I hope you you know not only get as many folks into the union as possible, but y'all should be getting paid at least double what you're making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe if you build up your union power for long enough, you can actually make Jacksonville a state. 
<laughs> That's right. But uh, unfortunately, you know, we've got all these wonderful happy stories, which we have loaded you up with to uh, turn into these ones that are a lot shittier. So, yeah. um, you know, we've talked a lot before, unfortunately, on this show about working conditions at Tesla mm-hmm. and how they could be, uh, I guess, most optimistically described as bad. It's not <laughs> great working at the bad idea factory, folks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, folks have probably heard of, you know, the numerous charges, very well substantiated, of, of racism by management, mm-hmm. uh, horrifically dangerous working conditions, and retaliation against anybody who steps out of line, not even just like talking about a union, but just even questioning why things are so bad. Uh, you know, there have been reports of this from many current and former employees. And so there was a recent uh, episode of a podcast from The Verge that spoke to a, uh, some former Tesla workers in more detail about how awful it is to work for Elon Musk, uh, owner of Twitter, which I'm not going to call X because that was the stupidest fucking decision. It's Twitter. Everyone calls it Twitter. It's still Twitter. I wish I could cut that little explanation, but then people wouldn't know that I said that I was going to cut that explanation. fair enough but um yeah so speaking with the land of the giants podcast which is the this is this podcast from the verge uh so this is a report about a podcast that was then reported on by business insider which is how i found out and then and then you know uh report by us yeah re-reported by us a podcast (laughs) yeah so this is the the marxist interpretation of the business insider article about the verge podcast Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh only the most processed news for our listeners uh but so this former Tesla worker who used to work at the Fremont, California plant, which was kind of the prime plant for, for Tesla for a long time, uh, Carlos Gabriel, he described uh, the condition saying, quote, what I saw was a lot of people sleeping on the floor, people working 10, 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week, end quote. I don't, think, also, I don't think he means sleeping as in not working, sleeping as in no. so tired they are falling asleep while working. I mean, when when Elon took over Twitter, one of the first things he bragged about was like sleeping in the office and how many employees are following his example. So I have no doubt that it's highly encouraged by the Tesla Corporation as well. Yeah, 100%. And uh, another worker, Hubert Mies, who is a suspension engineer, he he also described similar conditions saying, quote, you put in the hours and it was weekends, it was 8, 9, 10 at night, every night, end quote. And uh, so Gabriel, uh, who was a line worker, he was fired in 2020 after speaking out for more COVID protections. And Mies later left the company to work for Apple after years of extreme hours were taking their toll on his life. And another worker, uh, Dennis Duran, another production worker, he told of seeing workers throw up due to dehydration due to the pace of work and was forced to work around an ongoing sewage leak, saying, quote, we couldn't believe that it was almost like past our feet, the sewage. And we even asked, like, are we going to shut it down? This is ridiculous. They were like, no, no, we need to keep running. This is not going to stop a line, end quote. Wow, that is disgusting and appalling. I mean, and- I mean I'm, I'm sorry. It, it is literally like a Mr. Burns 
Simpsons gag up to your ankles in sewage won't shut down the line. I mean, it it's literally to the point where a lot of parodies of this are not at the same level as what's actually happening. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Because pe- I think people's idea of it is is just like, oh, like, well, Elon Musk is a like awful slave driving taskmaster, which is like that's the management style. But it's like it's so much more creatively worse than that, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, well, and I mean, for people who don't know that dehydration causes people to vomit, that is also going to be a uh, characteristic of another story in a little bit. Yeah, and so, uh, but Duran, the the, the worker who described the sewage leak, he has since become a uh, vocal advocate against the abusive working conditions at the company and has referred to Tesla as a modern sweatshop, which I think is just an accurate description. And and I I wanted to just mention this because you know this none of this is you know necessarily an entirely new revelation you know we've talked about how bad things are there before but it's I think it's important to underline that Tesla's business model and like really so much of the whole tech industry San Francisco startup culture shit is all bullshit and the whole we built these new companies on disruption and and creativity and innovation. The only disruption is disrupting labor laws. That's all it's ever been. Like it's their innovation is we designed cars worse than all the other companies, but we got billions of dollars by managing a shell game of carbon offsets that doesn't actually mean anything or meaningfully reduce carbon output into the environment in any way whatsoever. But through, you know, just handouts from the state, and gaming this bullshit system, they made a shitload of money. And they are, in my opinion, like one of the perfect examples to ever bring up of the idea that, you know, capitalism is a meritocracy, that the market and competition encourages the best to rise to the top is a lie and is not true (laughs) because Tesla makes fucking terrible cars. And this is what they do to produce those cars. There's nothing redeemable about this business model and it should be seized immediately and handed over to the workers so that they could actually turn it into a good company yeah god i don't even know how long it would take them to make one that doesn't fucking blow up because those cars are somehow over engineered and under engineered to hell at the same time (laughs) yeah absolutely uh and i mean in our continued uh coverage of a litany of terrible working conditions we need to talk about amazon now because well, let's just do it move from tesla to amazon because i think it's really a, a very perfect transition you know as we've reported many times on the unsafe working conditions that have notoriously led to twice as many injuries as other warehouses where workers perform similar work today we get to talk about Amcare, the uh, pseudo the pseudo medical facilities within Amazon warehouses. So back in April, OSHA for the third time in its in its entire existence issued a medical mismanagement citation to Amazon, saying that it seriously endangered employees' health. Uh, the Amcare facilities put workers at increased risk of infection, scarring, and long lasting in- injuries. And uh, this citation came after three other warnings that they had given out in 2016. That is, you know, it's kind of old news at this point, yeah. But but the thing that is really important to know is that this has continually gotten worse. They Amazon has just been doubling down on making these conditions worse and worse constantly because they're trying to get their number of injuries down. Uh, well, and like I just want like the fact that they're issuing it. 
I mean, medical mismanagement to me is such a clinical detached way to describe this. And I know you're going to get into the details, but it's just like, I feel like that is intentionally like written in such a technocratic way to uh, make it less obvious, like how bad things are. Well, and what does medical mismanagement mean? It means that they are putting people's lives in danger for just the sake of profit. I mean, one of the things that they're trying to do is lower the number of workers' compensation cases that they're facing, as well as just the number of of times where people are sent home because they have that, you know, twice as dangerous as any other warehouse. Well, what do they do to stave off these numbers? They put people on things like light duty, but we'll get to that. Amazon has tried to reduce the number of worker compensation cases it faces by claiming that workers with serious injuries can still work, but in less intense positions, and directs the untrained medical staff to diagnose workers in such a way that they feel forced to comply. Amcare claims that this is that they do not deter people from seeking real medical help, but worker experience would state otherwise. Oh no, yeah, the the company quote unquote medical services don't deter people from seeing doctors. The same way a company store would never deter somebody from going to the grocery store, or or company <laughs> unions would never deter someone from joining a real fucking union. It's also mm-hmm. fucking obvious, really. <laughs> like oh, it's very very similar, and we're there's actually one or two times where they are denying any sorts of wrongdoing and it'll become very apparent that those are all fucking lies. Well, well, I think the key distinction there is that when they say they're, you know, trying to reduce workers' compensation, they're not lying about that. They well, are, but they what they're trying to reduce say is, that. That's the way that I framed it. Well, but they're but they're <laughs> trying to reduce workers' compensation payments that's mm-hmm. true that's true not workers comp not injuries that would lead to workers comp claims they don't give a shit about that <laughs> well actually you know what's ironic is that's the thing that they say they care about well yeah but <laughs> and of course it's not true osha found that over a six-month period period amazon staff at warehouses around albany new york sent at least six uh, employees with serious injuries back to work instead of referring to them referring them to doctors, worsening their pain and potentially leading to prolonged injuries and lifelong suffering. Even workers who have received uh, concussions have been referred back to working with heavy machinery. An EMT who worked at the Nevada Am at a uh, Nevada Amcare described their experience working for Amazon, saying, "Quote: Everything that we're doing was kind of pseudo medical enough to have a gloss of being medical." When we're in ambulance as EMTs, the entire point is to get people to definitive care. Then I get to Amazon and it's like, no, we're not getting them to a doctor. So what do you need me for? I'm the person who gets them to doctors, end quote. And I think that this is a, is a, is a major highlight of the way that Amazon really treats these medical facilities in general. Yeah, and I mean, like that's very that rings true with the experiences I've had because when I worked at Starbucks, it was right down the road from uh, Maps, which was like the local first responder center, and all those guys were just like, "Yeah, we're just trying to get you to a real doctor's fast as we can." <laughs> I, you don't want me to have to treat your injuries and, and illnesses. <laughs> well, yeah, because they're tra- they're 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 trained to stabilize you, mm-hmm. which is really vital and really important. And yes. I'm glad there's so many EMTs out there, but it's a difference, like. That's not what a, like you EMTs don't work at clinics because it's it's a different job. It's a different like 
role. <laughs> Shocker, medicine is specialized. <laughs> yeah, like you we know? need people who can do triage, but we also need people who can be like, oh, you have like a strained, a sprained hip, and so you shouldn't be, you know, walking around the mm-hmm. warehouse. We should be doing something different or whatever, you, you which is a wa- different role. You wouldn't walk into a game development company and ask an asset artist to start coding. It just doesn't make any fucking <laughs> right. sense. Well, yeah. and I mean, this position is called outpatient medical rehabilitation or OMR. That's what Amazon calls these people who work in, in AmCare. And they're consistently EMTs. In fact, I don't know if they quoted anyone who wasn't an EMT. In the article that, that we got this from. Well, and I just want to reemphasize, though, that point that you mentioned that it's bad enough when these are like injuries to the extremities. Like if it's like, you know, somebody hurts their knee and they're sent back out there and that just makes it worse, which is bad. But sending people with concussions is a back to work is like a particular kind of fucked up because like, I mean, that's why there should be people in like, the NFL front office who should be, have gone to jail a long time ago Mm -hmm. because like, I mean that if, if you exacerbate the injury from a concussion, like that can destroy somebody's life. Yeah. I got a really mild concussion once and I couldn't even finish my shift at a beer store where there is zero heavy machinery to operate. Yeah. So like that's, it's not because it, I mean, and the other stuff is also bad where it's like you get a, you know, a repetitive motion injury or you strain your wrist and they're just like, fuck it, go back. That's also really bad because, mm-hmm. you know, you can permanently fuck up that joint. But the like, oh, your brain is injured. We don't care. Go back to working on the machine. Like, yeah, like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I mean, with the EMT that was just quoted, I mean, the you'd think oh maybe they're just contained albany well i mean listener you absolutely are not thinking that because you have listened you've listened <laughs> to this show but it's absolutely not contained to albany and likely span the entire amcare system they say that they have faced direct pressure from management to keep the amount of people referred to doctors low and that they have to request permission from senior managers to approve sending workers to outside medical professionals some reports say that workers are told that they're not allowed to seek outside medical care until they are checked out by Care. Amazon says that this is not part of protocol, but the system continues to reproduce this outcome. And so, what must we assume? I mean, that, that is actually protocol. <laughs> <laughs> so this is like this is this is one of those things, and this is going to be a bit of a tangent. But one of the ways that settler colonialism traditionally operates is they set up a border between the area that is controlled by the settlers and the area that is controlled by the people being colonized. And they say, but no, we signed a treaty. We will defend this border and we will not let any more settlers go across it. That is a lie. And they just, they actually encourage them to go across it. And then when they are inevitably, you know, opposed because they are violating the treaty and trying to steal people's stuff... Then the the settler army comes in and says, oh, well, we're we're coming in, but we're just defending people. And this is a way of, you know, saying I'm not breaking the law and then just breaking the law and, and just creating a bullshit bad faith argument to defend it. And this is not exactly the same thing, but it's the same sort of bad faith operation where you set up a system that you explicitly say is doing A when you have absolutely no intention of it ever doing that and that it actually does B, which is in fact the opposite. And it's the same thing with Amcare. It's, it's interesting also, uh, that you'd bring that up because it will have a parallel in a later story as well as I have alluded to with a different story. <laughs> 
sorry, John, did you want to say something? Oh, also, uh, just that kind of like duplicitous uh, approach to like, hey, actually, we're just trying to do the right and legal thing. And then you just like break the law and fuck everybody over. That's also like the entire Democrat playbook. (laughs) Yeah, that's like their whole MO. And then the only difference between them and and Republicans is the Republicans show up and they're like, we're going to fuck you over. And then they do it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in uh, 2022, a fulfillment center in Salt Lake City, Utah, was sending five or six employees on a workers' comp, uh, sending five or six employees to workers' comp doctors every week, said former OMR Jed Martinez. Yeah, that's wild. That's like 300 injuries at that one facility that required going to a doctor, an outside doctor every year. That's so many at one warehouse. Yeah. And I mean, he also said that senior operator ma- operations managers told staff that they needed to reduce the, that number uh, to one or two per week. Hmm. How? Uh, just because just had just do it uh, because they weren't actually changing any of the conditions that led to it. Managers encouraged OMRs to tell employees that there was nothing a doctor could offer them that Amcare couldn't provide. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I hate mean- that one a lot. I, it, it no shade to any worker who like feels pressured by that kind of thing because it's designed to pressure you, especially if you feel helpless for any number of reasons. But I swear to God, if a company doctor told me that, I would explode in their fucking face. And as, if I was well enough I, to storm out of there and straight to a real doctor, I would. Yeah, I would either quit or be fired, depending on just the order of operation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like that's yeah, it's that is an absolutely maddening thing to hear. Like. You, because you know, because you're sitting there and you know the person telling you that does not believe it, and yet they are insisting on it to your face anyway. Look, it's yeah. so demeaning. Look, you can't cook anything at home that you can't make right here in the break room <laughs> microwave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's so fucked. Yeah, it's also common for workers who experience injuries uh, to be encouraged to receive treatment from Amcare for three weeks before being referred to outside healthcare professionals. And some continue to use Amcare beyond that amount of time, probably because it's difficult to go to the doctor on mm-hmm. the wages that Amazon provides. And, or just uh, in, in America generally. Mm-hmm, yeah. True. I mean, it, it it's really... Uh, appalling i mean currently the doj the department of justice is investigating if the company is deliberately underreporting injuries and oh, think? as we can basically assume this is the case and not only these uh and not only from these examples but from the testimonials of many of the workers around the country Almost. The, the DOJ has noticed that water has been getting on wood and making it wet. They have launched an investigation to find out <laughs> if water makes wood wet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah, very much so that. Awaiting the results of that investigation with bated breath. <laughs> <laughs> Almost 75% of workers who experience serious injury on the job are shifted to, quote, light duty, which I had alluded to earlier, with at least a quarter actually being sent home with workers' compensation. Workers who are put on light duty often still have to lift packages and do other strenuous work, which exacerbates injuries. Uh, But when they don't have to, they do things like dust, which is kind of like questioned as to why they are going around dusting. 
my assumption is that assigning duties to or assigning workers to dusting uh, means that they don't have to file a workers' compensation claim and therefore can yeah. keep their injury numbers down and avoid other sorts of workers' compensation and bad publicity from the fact that they have incredibly dangerous work conditions. Yeah, look, we can't pay you workers' comp. That would be paying you to do nothing and admitting fault. So why don't we just pay you to do nothing here, which is a huge problem for you, and never admit fault. Exactly. Great. So yeah. glad we had this meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's it's this is one of the things, you know, just about just being a worker in the capitalist system that is just like that just it, it doesn't matter where you are. Like, it's obviously incredibly bad at specifically at Amazon, but like the pathological refusal to by bosses, managers generally to be like, Perhaps the best thing would be for the worker to go home paid for a bit. To just never, ever, to just try and find any way to avoid that, even if it makes no sense whatsoever. And be like, no, you can't go home. I know you can't do any of the work that we actually need people to do, and you got hurt here, so I really should just pay you to you know rest up and heal from the injury that is my fault as the manager, because it's my business. No, instead, we're going to have you do something completely pointless because I just cannot possibly accept that a worker should be paid to recover. Yeah, it's part of that like mentality of capitalism of just maintaining power, I think, as well, just like wanting to consistently be able to dictate the way that people's lives go on top of the incentives for them to keep things like their comp their workers comp numbers down well and also i think there's a certain kind of uh rea- force of reaction happening among a lot of the like business ownership class in the wake of covid when a lot of things were like out of their control and they did you know even though they got well taken care of by the government they did actually have to kind of sometimes take care of workers while they were at home and and like off the cdc regulations they're like oh my god i can't believe i have to let you stay home for five days even though that's not nearly enough time to not become contagious and now they're kind of like i don't know they they have this like pettiness about them where they're just like honestly if i could make these workers just live and breathe and die in this factory i would fucking do it oh absolutely approximately seven percent of amazon warehouse workers experience injuries so severe that they have to be taken off the job and uh, I think it's fair to assume that this number is even higher just based on the way that all of these things are set up to deny people the actual like rights to workers' compensation or even proper medical care. And all of the people who are just forced into the AIM care system and then, you know, maybe put on quote unquote light duty or whatever, who then probably get more injured. Well, and even 7% is just ridiculously high. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I would expect a uh, manual labor type of job place like that that actually runs on decent safety protocols to be like maybe 1%, maybe. Yeah. Really ideally less than that, like half or quarter of a percent. Well, and it's so much more shocking when you realize that like if you actually tallied up the number of injuries that realistically would constitute leaving the job, it's probably three, four times that. It's probably a quarter of all Amazon employees are like currently working with possibly life-threatening or quality of life diminishing injuries. Well, how many people, you know, hurt themselves at work, like a a back strain, an arm strain, any of the extremely common things, and they finish out their shift and they go home and then they wake up the next day and realize they can barely move around Mm -hmm. and then they call out. That's certainly like almost never classed as as an at-work injury. It's just classed as them calling in sick. 
Oh, absolutely. And every one of those is actually an injury. And long-term strain as well. I mean, these Amazon facilities didn't pop up a year or two ago. They've been going on for tens of years at this point. I mean, these there are workers who've been in these warehouses for a very long time, and if they don't get massive injuries like that are very sudden, they're experiencing these work conditions that are very slowly going to add up to major indus- injuries in the long term. Yeah, I can't. I, I shudder to think how little cartilage left would be li- in some of your joints after 10, 15 years in an Amazon warehouse. Yeah. And I mean, this really just all continues to underline just how vital it is that, you know, the labor movement put as many resources as possible into unionizing folks at Amazon. And uh, another thing that workers desperately need more defense against, and unions are one of the strongest things to do that, is wage theft which, you know, this has been a topic we've also covered on the show a lot, largely because in the U.S., wage theft is big business. It's uh, super common. It's by far the most common type of theft in the United States, dwarfing all other forms of theft, the only ones that are ever actually reported about, combined. Uh, The the estimate that I saw was that there is at least $50 billion in, in wages stolen from workers every year in this country, and that's, you know, just on top of the the surplus value that's stolen from every worker in every capitalist enterprise. And so, yet, despite this, despite the bosses being the greatest thieves in the country, uh, wage thieves are very rarely punished, as the courts, of course, as we, you know, emphasize on this show, are there to serve the, the rights of property, not the rights of people. And a recent report that came out in Texas showed the absolutely damning nature of our so-called justice system when it regards this kind of theft. And so as reported by the Dallas Morning News, there was a recent report from Rutgers University which showed that over the past 14 years, since 2009, over 3 million Texas workers have suffered wage theft, being paid even less than the pitiful sub-poverty $7.25 an hour federal minimum wage. And yet, even when the state of Texas ordered employers to pay $99 million in stolen wages over the last decade back to the workers they had stolen it from, nearly all employers... 80% who had been caught just refused to pay, openly flaunting the, the wage theft law. And, and per the Rutgers report, the way that this impact you know, rolls out to the average worker, it, it costs the average Texas worker $4,000 every year just in money stolen from their already pitifully low paychecks from their boss. Yeah, and to, just to be clear, like 3 million Texas workers is 10% of the entire populate not the working population the whole population of texas and on top of that is probably a low figure in the actual mm-hmm. scheme of things it's probably closer to five or six million or somewhere around there yeah absolutely you know wage theft being a technically illegal act although what, only to, sort of to what degree is it technically illegal when you can be ordered to pay restitution for it and just skip that as well yeah, like when the punishments don't amount to anything, it's not even illegal at all. This isn't even one of those deals where it's like if you can pay the fines. It's like if if you can have a lawyer say no, <laughs> yeah, you can skip out on this. Yeah, because I and, and I know you know this is cliche, but just I think it's vital to frame it this way. But like, think about if this happened to workers. If you are a worker and you I don't know you uh you you get fucking drunk and you you break a window or something, and like. 
you the court is like you broke this window you have to pay to fix it and you're just like no i'm not fucking doing that they would put you in jail yeah you end up in jail <laughs> uh and yet Three million workers, not just under a hundred million dollars in stolen wages, and eighty percent of these business owners are just just do exactly that. They're like, nah, I don't want to pay that, so fuck that, and nothing happens to them. Nothing. Uh, like Jen Round from the the Rutgers Workplace Justice Lab said, "Quote: Unfortunately, our findings demonstrate that the Texas Workforce Commission has failed to recover tens of millions of dollars, allowing non-compliant employers to violate workers' rights with impunity. This inaction leaves low-wage workers vulnerable to exploitation and puts compliant employers at a disadvantage." End quote. And their report found that realistically, even their numbers are an undercount mm-hmm. of stolen wages in the state, as you were saying, John, because they only track cases where the work, Texas Workplace Commission rules in favor of the worker, which it only did in 27% of cases. And let me look, I'm not a lawyer. I have not, and I have not done the legal research into all these cases. But as somebody who has worked with people <laughs> before and has also met a few bosses, I would say that at a minimum, I don't have to know anything about these cases. 95, probably 99% of those cases, uh, it's true. And the worker did have their wages stolen and they should have been ruled in favor. And yet they're only ruled in favor of 27% of the time. Right. So our 3 million cases is really looking more like 11 or 12 million cases. Mm-hmm. And it's also a filing bi- bias as for people who can even notice that they've been stolen from right. and have decided mm-hmm. to file for it. Right. right. So now exactly. we're up to now we're up to 15 million, literally half the population of Texas and probably nearly every worker. Yeah, it's basically just like you wage theft is is the rule mm-hmm. in in Texas basically based on these numbers. And and again, the one of the other stats that just drove me nuts reading this, over 25% of claims brought before the commission were ruled to be violations of the law that yes, the company did steal these workers wages. And yet they only gave the employer a warning. They didn't even make them pay back the stolen money. Like, and what is the what is the fucking per- like? I I don't understand how you work at a place like this and you write that down and you sign your name to it and you are not just like how do you take yourself seriously as a person? I don't get it. How, I mean, how, in what other situation can you steal thousands of dollars from somebody, be found guilty in a court, and then be sent on your merry way with a warning? <laughs> yeah. And the thousands of dollars. <laughs> like, to be clear, yeah. you get to keep the money. <laughs> yeah, like, and over 39,000 workers who have filed a claim and had been ruled in favor of that they were, had to have their wages stolen, 39,000 of these workers have received nothing at all in restitution for their theft. And half of them have had their cases marked closed despite the fact that they didn't get paid anything. Like, this is one of those, this, this, I, I know that I'm, you know, ranting about all this, but like this stuff is why I talk so much on this show about how important it is when we do our analysis, you know, as organizers, both as, you know, union organizers, but also more broadly as socialist organizers, the state is not a neutral body and never will be. 
Like this is how it is as, as maddening as it is. And as, as, as angry and incredulous as these stories make me, this is what it is supposed to do because the state is not supposed to work for us. It is supposed to work for the bosses and the state in Texas is doing a bang up fucking job. <laughs> like, and so like, one of the people that was interviewed by the Dallas Morning News, Oscar Torres, who is a construction worker in the Dallas area, said, quote, I feel that it's unfair, even for a day that you don't get paid. They rob your money. They steal it, end quote. And, you know, this is, it's just everything in Texas and really in the United States more broadly is just stacked against the worker. But the system in Texas is particularly bad. Workers only have 180 days to file a claim of wage theft. And it can take a while sometimes with the confusing ways companies do accounting to even figure out you've been stolen from. And if you file after that, too bad, statute of limitations, doesn't matter. You can't even get a ruling where we don't actually punish them. Right. And if it was, say, a systemic uh, issue where you didn't realize you were being stolen from for a while and then you're like, oh, hey, I'm going to check this paycheck. Oh, it's not right. That makes me want to check my last paycheck. Oh, wait, that one's not right either. And you start going back. At some point, you just don't get any re- like recourse for that. Yeah. And and the Texas Workplace Commission, even as ineffective and useless as it is for workers, but perfectly good at its actual function, uh, is also, of course, heavily underfunded, doesn't really employ in any investigators. And so the only investigations they do are over the phone. There's no visits to job sites. There's no actual investigation. It's they just, you know, they call a person and take something down and that's it. And if they call the worker back and they don't pick up the phone... A lot of times the case just gets dropped after one attempt. Like, because they so, were working and can't pick up the phone or because we get so many fucking crank calls that, you know, you don't always trust numbers with local area codes to your own. Yeah. And, and because of the complicity of the state in these thefts, workers, as, as you know, as, as y'all have, have pointed out here, are often afraid to put in claims at all because of, you know, fear of retaliation. And that's a justified fear because this report from Rutgers also found that over a third of workers who did file claims were fired or retaliated against in some way, and a much higher percentage if the workers were migrant or undocumented workers. And... You know, unsurprisingly, border area towns often see the highest rates of wage theft because you have these same racist, xenophobic, often just outright fascist bosses who are the ones fueling the genocidal attack on migrants in this country, who also often are the same ones relying on the super exploitation of those same migrant workers for the ridiculous profits that they make at their business. And so like domestic workers, laundry workers, and construction workers in particular have topped the list of professions in Texas facing wage theft. And I think this is, this story is so important because like Texas is, you know, they're a bit of an outlier here for how, brazenly bad they are but this situation is you know maybe differs in degree but is more or less the same around the country so you know it's 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 why it's so important that we understand that you know the way we fight this stuff is not by voting for democrats it's not by placing our trust in the capitalist state it's through worker power it's through unions it's through exactly what those folks at jacksonville state university in alabama are doing forming a union, even in the deep South, because only we as workers are ever going to hold capitalists accountable for this kind of thing. The state is never going to do that for us. Yeah, absolutely. Not the capitalist state anyway. Not the capitalist state anyway, but the capitalist state does occasionally do some things. Um, As long as we're talking about 
uh, wage theft, uh, let's talk about New Jersey, where they've actually forced 27 Boston markets to close over massive wage theft. So we see a big difference between different states' legal systems in this country. Uh, although they do all favor bosses over workers, there are differences of degree in how far different states will go. Federalism, the world's greatest system? Um, <laughs> unlike in Texas, while wage theft may still be rampant, in New Jersey there are occasionally more steps that can be taken against bosses. Case in point, this week on August the 15th, as reported by the AP, state officials in New Jersey forced 27 of the state's 31 Boston market locations to close due to over $600,000 in unpaid stolen wages to 314 employees. Over half a million dollars in stolen wages is an, an incredible amount. So in response, the state ordered nearly all the locations shuttered and issued punitive fines of $2.5 million on top of the 600000 The state has charged Boston Market with wage theft, refusal to pay stick leave, minimum wage violations, and attempting to obstruct the investigation. Any store violating the ruling will be fined at least $5,000 per day. The department stated that the stop work order will be lifted when all unpaid wages have been paid, all fines to the state paid, and all other identified workplace violations addressed. And Boston Market, of course, has appealed the ruling my main question is why does the state get two and a half million dollars when the workers only get 600 grand yeah well and so i I wanted to put this one in here because this is this this story i think is a great example of like this is about the best you're gonna get Mm -hmm. you know from 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 the capitalist state and it's you know by u.s standards pretty good I would point out that's less than an eight thousand dollar even with the fines it's less than an eight thousand dollar fine per worker and like this is systemic <laughs> to the point where it's basically every Boston market in the state was just stealing the wages from the workers over, you know, periods of years. And it took a really fucking long time to figure this out. Whereas if we had, you know, a system that was actually run in favor of the workers, these workers would have a union, which would be monitoring all this stuff and would have picked it up immediately. And, and, and you would have been able to address this before it got to the point where there was $600,000 in unpaid wages for 300 employees at every, almost every single location in the state. Or, or to the point where it is, if the union had addressed it before the state got to it, maybe all the locations wouldn't have had to fucking close. And these people wouldn't be like out of work in the fucking meantime as well. Well, right, exactly. And, you know, there's also, again, Boston Market has the chance to appeal this and drag this out. And even if they end up paying it, they can retaliate against the workers who, you know, violated the thing. And so, like, this is certainly, I don't want to be like, the, the the New Jersey response is exactly the same as Texas's. That They're not. Like, the, this is a much better system. But it still, again, it leaves the door so wide open for wage theft to happen in the first place that a company big enough as Boston Market, which I know they're not gigantic, but they're a chain, still felt like, yeah, fuck it, we can get away with this, and even if we don't, we'll just get some fine. Who cares? Yeah, it's absolutely appalling. I, it, like, <laughs> it's so it's so ridiculous to all of these things that are going on, and I and I think that this next story really is going to highlight a lot of other issues that many workers face, especially in like the South, and in this particular case, the the Southwest, where we're going to be kind of examining a lot of the conditions that actually affect people's families, uh, and especially farm workers. So as we have to talk about in relation to working conditions, we have to talk about the escalating climate catastrophe that's been going on and how farm workers have seen deteriorating working and living conditions. 
uh, as I mentioned, like in the Southwest, where we've seen records set consistently for the hottest days. The LA Times reported on the conditions of people in the eastern part of Coachella Valley, an area inside of the Mountain Divide east of Los Angeles, where, where there's an average heat of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 39 Celsius daily from June to September. Uh, an unstable electrical grid and basically minimum wage pay for all farm work jobs. When these workers find themselves and their families consistently overheated and dehydrated, call back to what I mentioned earlier, and you know are at risk of long-term heat-related illness. And this past July, there were 16 straight days of consistently over 115 degrees or 46 Celsius degree weather. That's like, when it's 90 here, I'm basically like, I'm not, no, I'm not going outside. You can't send me to do anything at work that's outside. That's that's too fucking hot. And yet these folks are doing really hard manual labor in 115 degrees. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there are lots of different mi- migrant workers who actually are very rarely provided housing these days. It was it used to be a lot more common that farmers would like farm owners would be required to provide housing, but now it's kind of like subcontracted to other people. But we're going to be focusing a little bit more on like the year round living pe- the people who live in this area year round in this particular story, and they've been actually forced to build illegal trailer parks in order to even have homes. And also a callback to that, you know, colonialism thing that Dan was talking about. In the 90s, the government moved to kick them off of the the land because of the illegal trailer park. And in order to get around that, to make sure that they could still live where they worked, they actually had to go and settle by nearby, like, tribal and indigenous lands in order to not be subject to those same county laws. So you have, like, the federal government here pitting one group of workers who it has oppressed against an entire people that it has oppressed. Uh, great. Love it. The the classic awful story about the United States. Yeah. Uh, Pedro Rodriguez, executive director of Coachella Valley Housing Coalition, which is the largest low-income housing developer in the region, said, quote, The reality is that a lot of people who live in these unpermitted parks are undocumented and they don't qualify for affordable housing funded by federal money. It's a sad situation because there are people working in the fields, picking the food that we eat, uh, and these policies don't allow them to have a decent home, end quote. And, I mean, this guy's interests are clearly in, like, housing development, but there is a lot more to this than just decent housing. These people are are on minimum wage in California. I mean, in California, it's $15, but that does not make up for the fact that they are still subject to these horrible, horrible conditions. Well, and and this is the situation in like one of, I think, two states that actually includes farm workers in 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 the the bare minimum, not nearly enough labor rights that the rest of workers have. So like, and granted, California produces a huge percentage of our food, but like, just consider that like, that's this is how bad things are in a state with an agricultural labor rights law. Consider the states that don't have them at all. Yeah. And like, I don't, as far as I could tell, the wages don't go up. I think that people are paid the exact same every year, no matter what. They're paid the minimum wage, as far as I can tell. 
but I we also we let's talk a little bit more about some of the more specific parts of the work conditions. There is this unstable electrical grid that they're facing, and so the families are forced to turn off lights and only use one AC unit during peak hours of the day because higher usage very often leads to not only housebreakers tripping but local power outages. For many families, these AC units end up blowing only hot air even when they do work. Uh, in these conditions, electric bills are still often over $400 a month. Wow. That's, yeah, that's so much. It's estimated that 39% of farm workers have problems keeping their house cool because, uh, based on a survey done by the University of California. Even that number sounds kind of low. <laughs> to me yeah well and i mean this is also just farm workers this are people who are employed i mean i think that it's also there's a lot of precarious people who end up living in these trailer parks where you know they get like inconsistent work they probably weren't surveyed you know uh i think that surveys often have this problem of of bias of people not having the means to even be surveyed very often um but well and it's like what did if, if they go to like one job site that's like got a good strong ufw presence and that's where they interview everybody and then that's not necessarily representative like yeah but we don't know i don't know the methodology yeah it said that the the survey itself was one of the larger like better surveys but i think oh, that okay. overall this is still like a very underreported on like issue in society the EPA also found unsafe levels of arsenic in the drinking water. Uh, and so, yeah, exactly. Uh, these communities are very often forced to either drink this poisoned water or subsist on bottled water purchased locally or provided or partially provided by local NGO groups. Because there are still some people out there trying to do a little bit of help, but, you know, they're very limited in what they can do. This is like also one of the things that, that, <sighs> Because, you know, people always throw out the the line, uh, the cruelty is the point, and I, which I always think is too reductive uh, because I don't think it really says anything. But, like, this is one of the things about specifically U.S. immigration policy that just puts these folks in just such an awful catch-22 because you have simultaneously the people who are – and this is going back to the story about you know wage theft in Texas, like I was saying there. It's like it's so often that the people who are pushing the hardest to crack down to make the lives of undocumented and migrant workers an absolute hell in this country – are the very same people most profiting by exploiting those workers. It, it, and it's, they're the same people opposing, you know, driver's license laws for undocumented workers who are, you know, their whole political life seems to revolve around the idea that if one undocumented worker got $1 in assistance from a local government, despite the fact that, you know, they're producing millions of dollars worth of, of value with their labor, that if they even got one second of attention from a government service, that that is basically the greatest crime that has ever occurred in civilization's history. It, those same people are the ones that are, are then like the farm owners here or they're the construction company owners in Texas or that, that are the ones that their whole business model is predicated on having this super exploited group of workers where it's just like if you actually got the end result of so many of these policies that they're talking about and people like Ron DeSantis are trying to implement and you actually stop the migration that your fucking white nationalist bullshit wants – you wouldn't have anyone to do your own fucking work and your business model would collapse. And it's just, 
And I know some of them know that. And so you'll see like some of the bigger, richer, more monopolistic folks will be like, I'm actually okay with some mild lessening of like some of these horrific constraints, but never a path to citizenship. Because again, they never want to acknowledge that the workers who do all the work that all their wealth is built from, you know, are maybe just as deserving of every part of the society that they are propping up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Really well said. Um, all of these conditions and more are what farm workers who work for minimum wage experience in this area. They pick grapes, dates, onions, peppers, other sorts of vegetables, all like in this incredibly strenuous heat, not only uh, at home, but also uh, at work where, you know, if they experience heat related illness, they basically get sent home without any uh, pay and Another thing I mentioned long-term consequences, one of the major things that is faced by these communities is like kidney disease because being consistently mm, overheated. Chronic dehydration. Yeah, exactly, chronic dehydration. Now, uh, speaking just a little bit more to home conditions, uh, Eliana Ramirez, uh, who's 36 and has been a farm worker since the age of 18, whose children have been told that they have to stay inside during the heat, uh, despite, you know, begging to go outside. And she says that it is because the heat is affecting them uh, so much. And uh, at work, when she's, you know, basically has to go home and without any pay she said quote i start feeling like i'm going to vomit my head hurts i start sweating and sweating and my heart starts to beat fast end quote and i mean that's like we were saying earlier with the dehydration and vomiting and the tesla plants this is exactly that same sort of thing but experienced consistently it's not just like on occasion once a month or whatever this is like a couple times a week that people experience dehydration and have to go home short of their shifts, leaving them to not have enough for, again, $400 electricity bills for electricity that they can't even cool their homes with. And I mean, just to kind of highlight the issues, I mean, wanting to provide relief for children who are begging to go to the beach for relief, she, uh, she said that they basically have to stay home because the heat also... Uh, runs the risk of breaking down the family vehicle, which is how she even gets to work. She said, quote, they want to leave the house. We can't. Not right now. End quote. Yeah. And I mean, this, of course, highlights what I think so many other things have highlighted. Like recently, uh, you know, there's a lot in here. There's so much, you know, about immigration and racism and the fascist nature of United States society. But like another big one is is both the current impact of climate change, not the future, not the it might get bad, the it already is bad part of climate change, but also the part of, you know, because people will point that out correctly. And, but it also points to, you know, why you have a lot less action from the rich, even the rich who aren't, you know, oil executives and stuff directly profiting from it, which is that. For so many of them, because, you know, people be like, oh, well, they think that they can avoid it. And well, for right now, they can. Like, they aren't the ones being forced into these horrific conditions. It's these migrant, undocumented workers that are forced to do that. So the, the effects of climate change can both simultaneously be here and be wreaking havoc. Like things like having a tropical storm in California, which is not a thing that is supposed to happen. Uh, or just, you know, the biggest wildfires ever, or the fact that, like, the it was 90 degrees in south america in the winter yeah uh, you know like yeah these are all happening 
But at the same time, that insulation, you know, that the rich are able to have, they're like, oh, it's going to be hot. I'm going to take my jet and go somewhere else. So, like, they really do are completely disconnected from the reality that the vast majority of us think. And that's why it's like the solution has to come from us, not appealing to them to understand how dire things are. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, as to not end on a on a sour note, I think that we should just quick do some congratulations. Yeah, we just wanted to say congratulations to 37 tank haul drivers at Univar Solutions in Santa Fe Springs, California, who voted to join Teamsters Local 986. Great work, folks. And we also oh, want to yeah. hand out some congrats to Starbucks workers at Heritage Place in Vancouver, Washington, at Grant Creek in Missoula, Montana, at Starbucks Chevy Chase in D.C., the Valley Plaza location in Portland, Oregon, and the Glen Creek and Wallace location in Salem, Oregon, who all voted voted to join Starbucks Workers United this past week. Um, also, what the fuck is Starbucks Chevy Chase? Fuck that I guy. I, I hate Chevy Chase. <laughs> Chevy Chase, Maryland. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's it's like one of those suburbs of D.C. Oh, yeah. I was looking at that, and I was like, that's an interesting name. Yeah. Huh. I, I, I'm from uh, uh, Keanu Reeves, Michigan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that'd be you cooler. joke. <laughs> but that would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I saw there was one of the pic, uh, there was a picket line picture from the the actors strike earlier from the SAG AFTRA and I remember seeing like I don't remember who it was it was like a famous celebrity who was on the picket line just wearing a hat and the hat just said Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Which I was just like that that rocks. That's, a, that, that's just the thing you can get apparently. That's a cool thing to put on a hat for sure. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of cool things, let's do the meme review. Yeah, speaking of hats, we're going to start it off with a cats and hard hats meme and this is just a cat wearing reflective sunglasses and a hard hat talking on an ancient and presumably indestructible Nokia phone. Uh, and the caption reads, when the boss calls and asks what your daily report is, but you don't know how to make looking for a new job sound good. Uh, <laughs> I got to say, if you don't know how to, if you've been looking for a new job all day, just tell them that you were assessing opportunities in the workplace. Mm. <laughs> there we go. That's there some good go. advice. <laughs> Yeah, so our next one, there was a really great uh, UAW rally uh, this weekend in preparation for the upcoming potential strike at the big, the big three automakers. This next one's in reference to that. And it's, when you're on vacation during negotiations at your second mansion in Mexico and you look out your window, and it's, first off, I love that they didn't even try <laughs> to get a picture of any place that looks anything like Mexico because this is like, I'm pretty sure this is a picture taken out a window in Michigan. Those are pine trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it's just uh, someone has like cropped out Sean Fain yelling into the microphone from the rally. <laughs> He's just standing there right outside the windows yelling into it. Hell yeah. yeah. It's so good. So good. Yeah, it was a, there's, there's some great stuff in that rally. I really liked, you know, because a big thing that these these auto companies have been trying to do with the UAW is be like, look, they're, they're trying to call back to the team concept era of the 90s and early 2000s, the class collaboration era of the admin caucus, and being like, look, you know, we just we just want to work together. Let's just let's just have these negotiations so we can continue working together to make these companies so great. And he ended, you know, one part of his speech with, you know, working together doesn't work for our members which hell yeah that's fucking true labor peace is not in our interest <laughs> and it's really great to you know see unions just be that openly confrontational with the understanding that it's like 
yeah, no, we don't have shared interests and we're coming for what's fucking owed. Yeah, absolutely. The next one is a screenshot of an article which may be doctored. I think it's doctored, but also it might not be because of the way that the fucking like news system in the US is, but it's a, a politics article and the headline is the Chinese Communist Party is so evil, it wants to kill your landlord. And then there's two bullet points below it that say, housing will become catastrophically affordable throughout China. The next one is, will your neighborhood be next? Three question marks. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I think this meme is a, is a reference to the New York Times article that came out recently, uh, where the headline was, for single women in China, owning a home is a new form of resistance. The housing market in China is in turmoil, but more and more women facing a less equal society are buying their own homes in search of security, which is the funniest way to try and make <laughs> single women owning homes a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, no, because I've seen all these stories about, oh, the China's economy is going to collapse. Their housing market's going down. <laughs> Prices for homes have, have, have dropped through the floor. And I'm like, oh, no, what a crisis. Can we have that crisis yeah. here? Well, it's also like things that would be a crisis in a capital capitalist economy are not crises in a planned command economy <laughs> i don't know what to fucking tell you <laughs> yeah or even you know in a in a in a sort of a hybrid mixed one <laughs> sure well if you have enough planning yeah you're going to be able to absorb uh price fluctuations in that real estate market i'm sure the ccp has figured out how much a house is supposed to cost like <laughs> <laughs> well yeah well i mean because they're like oh this is a crisis i'm like looking up homeownership rates in China, seeing that people at, at my age have 90% of them own their own home. Mm -hmm. Like, hmm, some crisis. Yeah, some crisis. Yeah. It's like if they made a report and they were like, the price of bread in Vietnam hasn't gone up in 20 years. Is this a crisis? It's like, <laughs> no. It's, it's just, it's so ridiculous. So this next one actually kind of goes to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier on the show. This is a cyanide and happiness co uh, comic where you've got uh, this guy's at work and his co-workers coming up to him. <laughs> I just like the way that he's drawn. He's like so very purposefully marching towards him with a coffee cup. <laughs> got, got the elbows all out and everything. And, and so he's thinking, all right, time for small talk. Keep it casual. And the guy comes up. Weather's been crazy, huh? And the original guy, yeah, because the world is ending. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, it's just crickets as he realized oh perhaps i have i've said a bit too much this is a this is a comic that is literally us and all of the listeners of this show i'm yeah. sure of it i'm sure of it right click i'd like to report this image i am in it and i do not like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i have i have basically had this conversation at work mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> Well, and then speaking of speaking of uh, reading the room, the the last meme just has Hank Hill walking in to Bobby Hill's room while Bobby is in his underwear doing kind of a sumo pose in front of the mirror, and Hank is labeled "normal people" on my feed, and then Bobby in his underwear is me posting all the time about revolution and seizing the means, and also <laughs> climate change. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so absolutely, just a lot of memes about us and our listeners today, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I thought I would turn the meme review into a time for self-reflection. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we need to end because self-reflection, you know, is 
Well, I guess we could keep doing it, but it's important to time box self crit sessions. You don't That's want them right. going right. over twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that, we're gonna wrap. And uh, if you want to support us, we'd appreciate it. We get all of our funding from listeners, and it's the only way that we're able to do this show. And if you'd like to also get access to our overtime episodes and all the other cool stuff we're doing, go to patreon.com slash workstoppage. It really means a lot to us uh, if you'd support us there. Jump in the Discord. Follow us in all the places. Links are at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.
You know, recently one of the COOs stated about our bargaining. I'm going to quote this. It requires a focus on reality, and we need to work together. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about reality. Let's talk about chimp reality. You just heard a chimp talk. You got five-year chimp. Who deserves better? Let's talk about the members right now that are working critical status. Let's talk about their reality. Now you still day. No day off. Let's talk about the reality of our retiring space. You heard a man come up here earlier. I see retirees right here in the front. They've had nothing for over 17 years. They're the reason we're all here and they deserve better. And he's still enjoying it. of jobs disappearing. If we don't lock down this EV work and this transition, it's going to continue. Let's tell our workers from Belvedere Assembly, from Lordstown Assembly, from GM Powertrain in Warren, Michigan, Ford's Romeo Engine Plant, Trenton Engine North, Marysville Axle, Toledo Machine. As a matter of fact, Let's talk about the 65 plants that have been closed for 